0: All right, well, we are really lucky today to be joined by uh, Professor Sam, uh, Sam Gosling. Um, I'll give you a little bit of background on, on Sam. Um, Sam is a professor of psychology at the University of Texas in Austin. Sam actually completed his doctoral work at the University of California, Berkeley, focused on the personality of spotted hyenas, which is quite the, uh, quite the unique specialty. Um and Sam is also author of the book Snoop What Your Stuff Says About You and if you haven't read it again I would highly encourage you to take a read of it it is a you will not realize the amount of residue that all humans leave in all walks of life um the amount you know from lawn care to christmas decorations to all these different things Sam points out um you you will be quite surprised on 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 how your personality um uh kind of leaves a residue as you uh you know as you go about the earth so i'd highly recommend that you take a take a read of the book now sam when we first started this i i think i watched one of your your talks at uh talks at google and my original game plan was to talk to you about again about your um uh you know about home spaces office spaces and things like that um and that's kind of where i thought that this was going to going to go and then i was driving in my car and I was listening to one of the podcasts you were um uh you were doing you were you were being interviewed by uh by a lady and um and the conversation completely turned on its head um and went into a completely different uh, different direction. Your conversation started then talking about um specific traits of ants and and extroverted squids now again, I've never run into an extroverted squid before. Um, I didn't even know one existed, but the question I actually have for you to start this off, we're going to start with some heavy hitting questions right off the bat here. And I got to tell you, it's a question I never thought I would ever ask anybody, but I'll be asking you is with respect to ants. Um, because what you said on this podcast was shocking. I had never known this before. So my first question to you is, is that, is it true that ants really have funerals and bury their dead? Is that an actual trait of ants?
1: Well, I'm not, you know, an ant expert, but um, it does seem that some species of ants do do some form of, um, you know, re- taking their dead away and putting them elsewhere. Now, it's kind of a question about whether or not you want to call that a funeral or not. And in fact, that was, that re- was the point, as you noted, like, you know, I did my PhD on um, personality in sported hyenas. And when I first started looking at personality in non-human animals, You know, there really wasn't very much work done, at least not, you know, in a kind of broad, systematic way. And the question comes up of like, okay, we know that people attribute personality to animals, but do they really have personality in the sense that you and I have personality? And of course, you know, this is the question of anthropomorphism, projecting human, what we see as human traits onto non-human entities, whether those be non-human animals or cars or whatever they are. And. And you know, and one of the kind of classic cases of anthropomorphism was this was this uh, friend of uh, Darwin actually George Romanus, who would collecting these anecdotes about animal behavior now and you know w- w- one of the ones that sort of most famously cited was him talking about these ant funerals um, and, and it' was kind of an unfair story in a way because <clears throat> Romanus. Didn't, is characterized as, you know, unreflectively and, you know, um, um, foolishly um, talking about, you know, without reservation, you know, j- just kind of w- without being careful, I would say, you know, um, talking about sort of these funerals of ants. Whereas, in fact, what he, you know, that doesn't reflect his position. His position was, hey, these are anecdotes that people report. And we need to report the anecdotes as they were reported. And then later, we as scientists can make, you know, our own um, determinations or guesses about, you know, whether they really were having a funeral or whether they were just, you know, removing the dead and carcasses and taking them away. But, you know, it's one of those things that, that Romanus, you know, always kind of is being is used as the example of, um, you know, foolish uh, and dangerous anthropomorphism. So when I was first looking at animal personality, you know, that was a kind of, you know, a a story I had to, you know, kind of be cognizant of because, you know, that was one of the objections to talking about personality in animals that, well, look, it's not real. It's just a projection of humans, you know, sentimental wishes onto animals.
0: And so, what's your conclusion at the end of the day is that, like, would the vast majority of non human animals have some form of a personality that differs across, like, you'd have, you know, extroverted, you know, many of us have pets at home, dogs, cats, hamsters, you, you know, whatever it may mm-hmm. be. Is that would a, would, would each of those, non-human animals have some degree of you know being an extrovert or or, or whatever a, a, you know whatever a personality trait that maybe we would normally ascribe to humans would would they would also be described be a, be ascribed to non-human animals
1: i think the the answer is that yeah pretty unequivocal yes wow. um and um but you know the, you know so the, 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 there are definitely individual differences so i mean you know if i told you you know hey there's two individuals i know and one of these individuals um, is more likely to get into fight, gets into fights really quickly and is more likely to respond to prov- provocations really quickly and does this in several different situations and does this over time. You know, we'd probably be um, pretty comfortable in describing, you know, that one um, individual who does that as having a more aggressive personality than the individual who doesn't. Yeah. But it turns out I'm talking about a study of fruit flies, you know. And so if you then say, OK, well, it's fruit flies, so I'm not going to call it aggressiveness, then that's just prejudice. If you're saying saying that, you know, so, you know, I think, you know, uh, um, you know, as at one I think it was Donald Hebb said, you know, the you know, the true you know, objection to anthropomorphism is ascribing uh Qualities, is something I'm, I'm, I'm misquoting, but you know, is ascribing qualities in humans in animals that don't exist. But but that's that's the mistake if they don't exist. If yeah. they do exist, it's a mistake not to, to do that. You know, and of course, it's, you know, it's one of those questions that that I think you know people have a knee-jerk reaction to. You, you know, when I first started studying um, personality in animals, when I was in, in in grad school and started kind of beginning to take it seriously, kind of people. Split into kind of two camps, those who thought well it was it wasn't worth you know animals obviously don't have personality, it's obviously just projection. why waste yeah. your time studying it, or anyone who had two pets said, well, of course animals have personality, what a waste of time you know you shouldn't even bother studying that too so it was, it was people who thought it was obviously true or obviously false um but so then you know we went, we went on to kind of study you know and that now that doesn't mean they have everything we have so you know in the early days yeah. i was doing studies of dogs and i was just giving them like a human questionnaire because there was no animal personality they were asking people to describe their dogs which people would perfectly happily do in things of like nervous and friendly and so on but because it was a human questionnaire it also had items on that like philosophical so i wondered like what will people do when they're asked to describe whether their dog is philosophical And the answer is they just perfectly happily filled out the questionnaire without even blinking. (laughs) Now, I don't believe that dogs are philosophical in the way that you or I might be philosophical. Uh, But so there definitely is unwarranted projections onto animals, but that doesn't mean it's all anthropomorphism. We should just kind of shrug our shoulders and walk away. It just means we need to be careful. And then once you can say that, you can do very interesting things, like just as some You know, some people are better suited to be librarians or truck drivers or salespeople or whatever it is. It's also true that some, you know, animals are better suited for things like, you know, which is the best, you know, explosive detection dog and so on. Some are better suited to it than are others.
0: No, that's really, that's really interesting, especially, you, you know, like a dog is one thing. But a hamster and things like it's a different and you talk about fruit flies like again mm. it's um but it makes sense right like it like right. you know and, and you've talked about this like a basic human a basic animal trait is survival so some right. are going to survive or some are not going to survive and part of that is going right. to be a function of your personality um right. so
1: yeah um and our so tendency as you, also to see these traits and you know our tendency to see these traits is also motivated right like if we are going to be eating an animal you know, like you know, like for example, in my class, I will ask the class, "Hey, who thinks cows have personality?" You know, and you know, many people will say no, but anyone who lives on a farm or has direct contact with cows will say yes. And you know, we certainly are incentivized as to not see individuality in the in the in the individuals we're going to mistreat, whether that's other humans or other animals or whatever it is.
0: So, so, so just a question when you could have picked any animal to to, when you did your doctoral at the um in in Mm. california you know you have obviously a wide spectrum of animals that you could have selected you mentioned dogs and cows and things like that why did you land on on spotted hyenas like that just seems Mm -hmm. like did you grow up with hyenas or like what was the what was the love affair with spotted
1: hyenas it's it's a kind of straightforward answer it's because there was a captive colony of spotted hyenas <laughs> on, the, on the Berkeley campus. Oh, really? Which were being studied anyway. So that meant that, um, you know, we had this colony and we had lots of people <laughs> who knew all the individuals, and so we could do the study. And wow. we all, You know, we've also done studies on dogs and cats and, as you mentioned, you know, uh, squid and uh, chimpanzees and various other species. But, but that was the, 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 the focal study was in hyenas just because they were there. Got it okay
0: so so sam as you can imagine i again i was quite interested in all of this and all this material not just on the mm. office and personal space but uh but animals and everything else so i got into reading and listening to a whole bunch of your stuff um so what i'm going to try and do now is to try and turn the tables a little bit on you and try and um learn a little bit more about yourself now you never invited me to your your house or your office so i wasn't able to see your your home or office space however as you outlined in the book, there are a number of spots in which people leave their human residue. And one of those is um, uh, is Twitter. And you have a Twitter profile that um, that I went to go and, and look on. And it is a very interesting Twitter profile. Now, I'm not going to comment on the picture on Twitter. I'm going to steer away from the picture. I'm sure there's a good story. I'll let people go and check out the picture. I'm sure there's a good story behind that picture. But there's enough other stuff that i got to ask you about um, on that Twitter feed to learn a little bit more about you. Now, one of the highlights, one of the things in the title, is competitive duck feeder. And I googled this. I googled this, Sam, and I got zero hits on Google. I don't think there's many things where you could say I can Google, and you would get zero hits on Google. But competitive duck feeder, I got zero hits on Google for that. Um, mm-hmm. So maybe you can provide a little bit of context behind competitive duck feeder.
1: All right. OK, well, I, yeah, I spent a lot of time um, uh, living in uh, spend it in Berlin um, and my flat is on uh, a, a canal in Berlin. And I love to just kind of um, invent games so that th- you shouldn't have found it on Google. But this was just a <laughs> game we made up where my friend and I would go stand on one of the bridges and would point to a duck and would each have a piece of bread <laughs> and would throw it in. And whoever's piece of bread the duck ate first was the winner. I, I But I, expe, I do fully expect it to become a uh, fully recognized international sport in the wake of this uh, discussion.
0: Well, and yeah. It, it, and well, the other thing, too, is that you have an unfair advantage. Like, you know, there's, you, you know, card counters at casinos get get rooted out pretty quickly. <laughs> um, and I would have thought in your case, I, I don't know if your friend knew what your background was, but. <laughs> You may have had an unfair advantage, being able to spot the duck who was the most of you know the extrovert duck, or maybe the most hungry duck. It almost seems like you'd mm. be getting a bit of an unfair advantage in that particular particular game. But um, that's yeah. uh, that that certainly maybe it will maybe it will pick up. Um, maybe, well, he's maybe, a.
1: The other guy was actually a PhD in economics, <laughs> okay. so you know he he may think he had the the advantage about you know talking about bread scarcity and so on, and perhaps I see uh, you know. So I think we it depends. You know which model of duck nature, I guess the you know the psychological actor or the economic actor is the most appropriate. I suppose I see.
0: OK, so then the next question, Now you mentioned Germany, and I think that's going to help us explain the next uh, the next item on your uh, in, in your title, which is a land work and all captain. And I believe it's a land work in, in a canal, I believe, is what and I think that actually there's a picture on your Twitter feed, which looks awfully like a canal. So I'm, I'm guessing mm-hmm. there's a little bit there's a little bit of a linkage there, but perhaps you can explain exactly what type of a captain that is.
1: Well, you're right. It's all coming together. It's the, the same <gasps> canal outside my apartment. And I see. One of the things that I love to do is is take my little uh, rubber boat, the Belafonte, out on the canal with my friends. Uh, and so I have, uh, although I rarely wear the captain's hat, if ever, I am, you know, I'm, I'm kind of the uh, captain in the background. I and, see. Uh, so I, yeah, I've assigned myself as the Landberg Canal, which is the name of the canal.
0: Throwing the, the bread, throwing the bread outside the out the boat for the ducks. I guess is that the uh,
1: is well. That we would normally that's the the official sanctioned uh, international duck feeding is from the bridge. <laughs> I see. Okay,
0: <laughs> you got to throw it
1: all the way down the
0: all yeah, the way yeah. down the bridge. I see. Okay, yeah. I see. It, I guess it would be more dramatic watching the, the bread go all the way down the all the way mm-hmm. down the uh, the slope. So no, that makes sense. And then the last thing. Now again, what we're going to talk about is music. And how mm-hmm. that can that can illustrate um, and 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 give some telltale signs of your personality, mm. but you're also a notable DJ. So so perhaps you could explain: <laughs> is that a music DJ or, or or is that some sort of a duck DJ or something
1: like that? Yeah, I, uh, more the latter. I, I say I say DJ. I and that's partial. My favorite jokes are, are come at the jokes that only I get. Um, and so so the the DJ bit was it's a little bit of a joke and a dig at at Berlin culture, where essentially. You know, you If you meet somebody who who says they're not a DJ, then 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 that's the point of I interest see. because you know everybody. You know, it's like in LA where everyone's writing a script, working on a screenplay. So, um, and and the DJ actually refers to also my uh, I, I DJ while on the boat, but of course that DJing task is pretty easy because it mainly consists of playing Harry Belafonte. I see.
0: So, so your Twitter feed, would you say it it portrays an accurate? Um, reflection of of Doctor Sam Gausling is is, is that a is, does it portray an accurate reflection or are you trying to hide you know because you also talk about whether people can hide their personality and mm-hmm. people are actually ineffective which we're going to talk about in a bit mm-hmm. about in it about hiding their personality so do you think that this gives an accurate reflection of of yourself and and, and your personality traits
1: yeah I would say it does I mean I think uh, it it gives a accurate but partial reflection um you know i'm not a great twitter user and you know and i really only got twitter because i thought it when we started you know we were kind of ahead of the curve of this kind of online teaching you know we've been teaching our classes live online since 2013 and so we were kind of trying to you know spread the word about that and so um that's why i got a a twitter account so it was kind of like somewhat under duress that i even started doing it i see Um, so, but I would say yes. I would say the the impression I give on that is accurate, but only part of 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 who I am. And you know, and I think it's you know it's accurate for for two reasons. Uh, you know, and, and 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 this gets a little bit to my theory about you know how we express ourselves in our everyday environments. You know, and the first thing, the first idea. And, you know, and this applies to our physical spaces, but also, you know, really at any place is how we connect these spaces. And the, and the first process, you know, is what I call identity claims, which are kind of deliberate statements we make um, to others about who we are. You know, when we want to, con- it's, it's specifically about broadcasting. We want to convey to others um, these uh, elements of our um, of our sort of our goals, our attitudes, our values, uh, and so on. Um, so, uh, and you know, and this can happen in all kinds of contexts. This might be like the bumper sticker you uh, put on the back <laughs> of your car, or the you know the t-shirt you have with your university or your favorite band or whatever it is. But also, you know, in things like social media, we may want to deliberately convey to others what we like. And I think you know the first. You know, objection to that is always well then you could just do anything you could try to you know you could just say give a false impression of of something you you aren't really um but and and that technically is true but empirically it tends not to be you know and there's all this great work by my colleague um, bill swan uh what's from what's known as self-verification theory which suggests we actually you know in reality we want others to see us as we see ourselves we're not if you look empirically although it's technically possible we are not trying to create a false impression you know you know even people who have you know a negative self-views they would rather be seen negatively by others than positively because that is what you know what what bill swan calls verifying to them it makes them feel understood and seen Um, and so anyway so that's you know the first you know you know process of us sort of projecting our personalities into these spaces is the deliberate things we do and then another thing we do is is what i call behavioral residue sometimes it's residue metaphor breaks down but the idea with residue is that you know we engage in a lot of actions and a subset of those actions leave a material trace in their wake Uh, and so you know some of the things some of the behaviors i'm engaging in will be reflected in what I'm, what, you know, in the photos I'm posting or the things I'm posting on Twitter, and people will be able to reason from those behavior, behaviors back to the kind of person I must be.
0: Yeah, because, you know, reading through your literature, one of the things you like is you like different experiences, right? Like, that's part mm-hmm. of your personality. And, and if you look right. on your Twitter feed, it certainly portrays that, <laughs> you, you know, mm-hmm. in terms of uh, different, you know, different types of uh, different types of experiences. So, so, maybe to start back at the beginning, Sam, what mm-hmm. got you into um, behavioral analysis? Why was it an area of uh, of, of interest for, for for you? How did you get down this path
1: mm-hmm. well I, mean, I was always interested in um, psychology you know my my father was a psychiatrist and psychoanalyst, and I always loved kind of sort of just talking about why it was that people did things um, but the uh, but it was really. Um, When I got to grad school about the same time, you know, I was thinking about the hyenas that, um, you know, we, you know, psychology is meant to be kind of a study of behavior. But if you look what virtually all research psychologists are studying, they aren't studying behavior. They're studying either what people say they do. They're giving them surveys and questionnaires or. They are studying kind of contrived recreations of behaviour in the lab. You know, they're not studying, you know, everyday yep. racial discrimination. They're setting up some lab room in a psychology department, you know, where you know an Asian person walks in and, and something happens. You know, it's yep. not real, you know, real behaviour. And so, you know, and that has been a source of frustration to many uh, people and has, you know, people, you know, people in the field occasionally bring it up. But then what are you going to do about it? Now, our most recent work, our response to it has been, okay. well, let's use mobile phones and all the sensors on people's mobile phones with their permission to actually measure behavior in the real world at scale. But back when I was in graduate school in the 1990s, that wasn't possible. And so what I thought was just as, you know, Sherlock Holmes may look for evidence of, say, criminal behaviour in the material traces people leave behind. Why don't we, as psychologists, look for traces of ordinary everyday behaviour in the traces that people leave behind? Uh, and so I thought, you know, we, you know, it's it's hard to study behaviour because if you really follow somebody around, or video them, or whatever it is, then they behave differently. Of course they do, and yep. they don't, you know. But if you can go and look at their traces then you can try to find evidence for things they've really done in their real lives.
0: It's almost like you have to, you know, when I was in university, we would participate in the odd psychology experiment. And like you said, it was exactly what you're describing. You would go into the Mm. building in a controlled environment. They would, you know, you would, in my case, I remember watching a video and they'd ask you before Mm. and after that video, how you would feel. And we'd all be in there together. But what you're describing is the reverse. you got to get out of there in order to see the real world and how and to see how people are actually interacting in the real world which presumably takes a lot more work than trying to bring everybody inside you know what i mean you know if you're going out like you say you're going to follow you know 30 40 50 you know two thousand people around that's uh you know that's
1: no shortage of effort in order to do that right it's it's a it's it's very hard to do and of course does have problems in the sense it's much harder in the real world to do you know true experiments you know by which i mean kind of you know, randomly assigning people to conditions, you know, that, that's what you can't do. So that's the value of the experiments is that you can randomly assign people to like look at the causal effects of things. But the, as you say, the problem with them is all an experiment in the lab shows is that something can under some circumstances happen. You have no idea, I mean, literally zero idea of whether it ever happens. Yep. All you know is that it could happen. So how did you
0: get the idea to go out and look at people's um, bedrooms to and and or, mm. or look at people's personal living spaces? Like, what was mm. the what got you that idea to say, "Hey, let's go give this a"? Because mm-hmm. that was that was yeah. not normal. Like that was kind, you were kind right. of going out on a limb there. You didn't know what was going to happen when you guys first started that experiment.
1: Yeah, we had no idea what would happen, and and I think you know part of it I can attribute to one of my graduate school advisor, Kenneth Craig, who was always interested. He was you know. Uh, you know uh one of the founders of, of what you know they were calling environmental psychology they so 're really looking at the effects of the ordinary everyday environment on uh, on individuals' behaviors you know and how we affect those environments, how they affect us uh, and I think um, um, one of the so as you know as I said really I was initially had just thought of the environment as a kind of receptacle for evidence of behavior and so that's you know when I started going into people 's places that 's what I thought I said, okay we'll just see traces of people's behavior but then of course as soon as you get in and you open your eyes you realize well wow, a lot of these things aren't just you know behavioral indicators that they're, they're doing something else so you know one yeah, and one of the things is the thing that i mentioned earlier they are deliberate claims people say that they're, they're not just kind of inadvertent traces they are deliberate statements people are making to others you know these are these so-called identity claims another thing they're doing um which is a a way that people will affect their environments is what we call thought thought and feeling regulators. So that is the idea is that people will do a lot of things in their spaces, not as a signal to others, but in order to make themselves think about certain things or feel certain ways. So, you know, classic examples are, you know, if you, you know, ready, you know, want to get pumped up for, you know, a night, a wild night on the town, you listen to different music. Than you do, and if you had a stressful day and just want to kind of sit in the bath and relax a bit, because you are uh, deliberately saying, "Okay, I'm going to alter the environment right now to change my mental state." That's you know, that's we have this implicit knowledge that that's what we're doing, and it, it could also be thoughts. I mean, I I don't know if you're in your I, I see your studio now. I don't know if you're <laughs> home, studio, but you but you might probably have. You know, many people will have around their studio, they will, you know, have kind of, you know, personal reminders, sentimental reminders of important people, places or times or something like that. So, you know, you might have, you know, a, you know, the classic, you know, pebble from the beach where you had your first kiss or something like, you know, something. So yep. that's not a commun. That's not a communicative thing. Right. If somebody else comes in and sees that pebble, they have no idea what it means. It's not for them. It's for you. Uh, it's not communicative it's to it's to remind you of a time or a person or a place or something, and then that is a, 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 and and we use you know our environment that way you know and we and we also do it i think you know i mean again it's one of these things that we do so naturally that we don't even notice we're doing it, so even things like you know moving from one spot in the room or in the house to another spot is you know a lot often we are doing that in order to affect our mental state, our thoughts and our feelings. Uh, You know, we just suddenly find ourselves sitting on the couch. You know, we were sitting at the table, now we're on the couch. And why did we do that? Well, we did that because it affects our mental state. And so anyway, so the idea was, if I can look at people's environments and the sorts of places they create both deliberately, as I said, through through, um, identity claims and thought and feeling regulators, and inadvertently that is behavioral residue if we can look at these things in people's spaces maybe that is a useful way to learn about the people's the people who spend time there
0: yeah so most of the people listening are not going to be psychologists um Mm -hmm. so maybe you can just give some a bit of a background on you, you know most humans can be Boiled down into these big five personality traits, mm-hmm. and most yeah. most people are going to have different different elements, and you're going to be different on the mm-hmm. scale. And actually, in your book, there's mm-hmm. some really good surveys mm-hmm. you can do. And I actually, mm-hmm. got, find myself getting a piece of paper and actually doing them while I was mm-hmm. reading your book, just to kind of see where I would land. But maybe mm-hmm. just walk through kind of the, sure. the quote unquote big five personality traits in terms of what yep. you're what you're looking for. Um, mm-hmm. And where most, you know, most humans would have an element of, of each of the big five personality traits.
1: That's right. Yeah. So, so, so uh, the idea here is, yeah, is that, that most of, of human personality <clears throat> traits. Now, I want to emphasize that's not all of human personality. There's lots of personality that goes beyond personality traits, but personality traits are the things that have been most extensively studied by psychologists um and so this bit you know many people will have heard of kind of the myers briggs of the mbti which essentially breaks you know personality into four dimensions and i think you know there's a lot of value actually in those instruments too it's just they were they were devised in a in you know in in you know in, in not the most you know kind of rigorous and scientific way not the way it would be done today so i think it, it's you know i think if myers and briggs had you know a fuller scientific training and had had you know better statistical tools and more data actually the mbti would now have five dimensions not not four but anyway so anyway so for people who understand the mbti that's a kind of useful way of saying essentially the the big five is like that but kind of a a more kind of scientifically uh, recognized set of dimensions. So just as in the MBTI, everybody has a score on all five of these dimensions. So their extroversion is what they're known as agreeableness, conscientiousness, uh, neuroticism, uh, and openness. And all of these dimensions uh, have two poles. So when I say extroversion, that means extroversion versus introversion. And so the idea is that everybody lies somewhere along this the extroversion introversion uh, dimension, and just like the, all uh, most variables and especially biological variables, most of them are kind of a bell shaped curve. So. Nearly, you know, most people are somewhere in the middle, but there yeah. are some people who are very extroverted and some people who are very introverted And the other thing to keep in mind, of course, is these dimensions if I say there's only five of them You said well, how can that possibly capture all of you know, the ways humans are different? Well, it's because these are very broad dimensions So when so, so you need to be very careful that when I say something like extroversion, you don't just think of kind of the lay Kind of understanding of extroversion. In fact, it's a broad dimension that, based on empirical, many, many years and decades of empirical uh, studies, have shown essentially that certain kind of sub traits go together under this broader dimension of extroversion. So, people who are high on extroversion, these are people who te- will be talkative, they tend to be cheerful, they tend to be more active, um, they tend to be more dominant. Uh, than others. And so, and, you know, uh, and that, you know, combines a uh, uh, contrast with people who are introverted at the other end of the pole. And so, you know, and I think the way you can really think about extroversion is kind of where people get their energy, you know, it's, and, and, and so, you know, so that, and, and, you know, many people, you know, even introverts will learn, okay, it's effective. It being extroverted is helpful in many of the tasks society presents to us, being meeting people and so on. And many introverts can fake it. They can say, okay, I've got to go to this social networking event. Damn it, I am going to behave in an extroverted way. But the but the real difference between an extrovert and an introvert is at the end of that networking event, how do they feel? An extrovert will have been energized by it. They will have thought, wow, that was great. I met all those people where is the next party? I'm ready to go. Whereas an introvert after that, they will be exhausted. They will often kind of make some excuse and disappear off to the toilet and hide in the bathroom stall for a while to kind of recover from all of that stimulation. So, and, you know, those sorts of differences you can't really fake. It's just, you know, it's it's like how it affects your, you know, your uh, physiology. Yeah, and I, I I think of extroversion, you know, essentially as being kind of a sensitivity to kind of, opportunities and what you know the the opportunities in life and i'll contrast that with neuroticism when i get there um uh, uh, so the next dimension is agreeableness so this is essentially the high end of the agreeableness versus disagreeableness the high end of this poll are people who are kind of calm, sympathetic they're warm they are trusting they are trustworthy versus people at the other end of the poll who are going to be more direct, they're going to be more critical, they might, you know, uh, uh, verge on being rude, they might be less trustworthy, and, and so on. Um, the next dimension is conscientiousness. Now, this is probably the the poorest label of uh, the big five. It's the one that, you know, gives you a least good sense of what it's about just from the label. But these are essentially people who are task oriented they think before they act they're good planners they buy supplies before they run out they are organized um plat plat you know they're rarely late uh and so on versus people at the other end of the poll would typically be a little bit more kind of chaotic and you have to tell them if you're going to meet with them you have to tell them that the movie really starts 30 minutes before it does start and those sorts of things uh neuroticism again this is it's, it's not a good name because you know because it sounds bad but essentially this is really contrasting people who are at the high end of the neuroticism pole. these people tend to be kind of easily stressed they're kind of anxious they're more fearful they um uh you know you as, as i said um you know you could call extroversion a sensitivity to what might go right in the world you can think of neuroticism as a sensitivity to what might go wrong they are kind of alert to the dangers you know they hear a, a door slam and they like hmm. immediately you know orient themselves to what was that whereas you know others don't even you know don't, don't 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 notice. versus the people at the other end of this poll who tend to be kind of you know uh, more more calm easy going um, and are not so kind of ruffled by you know what what's going on in the world around them you know and and then the um the last dimension is is known for short as openness, but it should really be thought of as openness to experiences It's not openness to other humans it's not openness to feelings it's op- it's a kind of much more, more of a kind of intellectual openness so these people tend to be more abstract, they tend to be more philosophical um they tend to be more curious uh, more adventurous those sorts of intellectually adventurous i should say um Versus people on the low end of the poll who kind of like predictability. They're much more concrete. They're much more traditional. Um, they're much more conventional. You know. So you know, my test for that is, if you go to a restaurant and you see the item on the menu and you say, "I've never seen that before. I'll have it," you're high in openness. Yeah. If you go to the if you go to the restaurant and say. Do you have the spaghetti? Okay, good because I like what I know, and I know, and I know I, know, I know I like what I know, and I know what I like, and I like spaghetti. Bring me spaghetti again, please. That I'd your, be on the your, low your end of the on. scale there.
0: Yeah
1: yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. I'm getting the spaghetti. <laughs> and, you know, <laughs> and, you know, and you know, one of the big questions is: Are some of these better than others? And yeah, you know, and the answer is: Yeah, kind. You know, often, but but you know, but not always. You know, so like you know, good. is like, is it good? To, you know, is it? Is it good to be higher neuroticism? Well, you know, neuroticism is the sensitivity to, to danger. So it kind of depends how dangerous it is. So if you if you live in a very safe world, as, as many people kind of you know in the, in you know developed Western nations do, then it's you know it's it's actually kind of often a misuse of your resources to be worrying about the dangers that aren't there, you know. But if you you know are <clears throat> you know, living in, you know, uh, Mogadishu, where there are dangers around many of the corners, then it's actually good to be sensitive to dangers. You are actually going, you're not going to be one of those low neurotic people who are just ignoring the dangers that are really there. Yep. So it's all, it's all about, you know, whether it's good or bad is a kind of, you know, is more about a kind of, you know, a match to the environment um, that you live in. So,
0: Sam, here's a in your book you you actually take mm. the map you have a map of the United States mm. and actually you know start parceling up you know big town small town mm-hmm. um, you, you know traits that might be in those it was really interesting because mm. my question to you would be in terms of the traits if you're an mm-hmm. introvert today let's say and you wanted to mm. be an extrovert yeah can you change and is there um, because again you raise you raise the example obviously somebody who grew up in Mogadishu it's mm-hmm. going to be a lot more neurotic than perhaps somebody mm-hmm. who grew up in small town USA, mm-hmm. um, and and it's it's a function of their environment. Um, if you if you mm-hmm. switch those two people at birth, you know they would probably grow up to be much different people than how they actually were. You know what I mean? Just because the environment yeah. is going to impact them. And I'm just wondering, like, is is it ever too late to change? Or or at at some point do you get to a stage in your life, mm-hmm. you know? 15, 20, 30, 40, 50 mm-hmm. years old. And at that point, it's just too late. Like your environment mm-hmm. impacts you for so long. But if you lived in a big town mm-hmm. and said, look, I'm like neurotic. I'm like you, you know, every horn honk, I'm freaking out. I want to go live in a small town. And maybe that mm-hmm. like can you can you change or is or at some point is it is it too late?
1: Well, I think there's, there's a few things to note there. Well, first, you know, I think you know, as you say, yeah, like what you know, what is clear is that our personalities, you know, at most ages above being an infant, are affected by both our genetic inheritance and our environment. So I I don't think it's possible that somebody who is, you know, genetically very high on introversion will ever truly enjoy a big party of of strangers. You know, that, yeah. So, 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 but there is room. So, how I think about it is like, let's let you know, just for the sake of argument, let's imagine that you know, extroversion scale varies from you know, one to ten, with uh, you know, with one being introversion and ten being extroversion. You know, the way I think about it is like your genes might just dis- determine like kind of the kind of the kind of the your range on that scale. So, you might be genetically okay, you know you've got are genetically between a, you know, a two and a six. And I might be genetically between, you know, a, you know, a five and a nine or something like that. And so, you know, I will never be a 10 and I will never be a four and you will never be a one and you will never be a six. But The environment will determine your experiences will determine where within your range, whether you're at the higher end or the middle end or the lower end of your Kind of genetically predetermined range. So you know. So yeah. It. So so the first thing is yeah. It you can you will be affected by those things, but within limits. Got it. And then regarding your question of change, there's essentially two two forms of change you can think of. So there is you know what we know is there's normative change. So that is on average, for example, we know that for if you start at around the age if you look at the age of a sort of 13 year old to between the ages of 13 and 23 and even to 33 everybody is becoming more conscientious so everybody is changing and that's you know associated with both you know the growth of our frontal lobes which is essentially what conscientiousness is about is inhibiting impulses and planning and thinking before we act and those sorts of things so you're gonna so every so there's going to be what we call normative change that is these sort of changes in everybody in in everybody um or not everybody but you know nearly everybody most people the vast majority of people but then they're all so that is you know you know you and i you know you may be more conscious conscientious than me as a 13 year old uh, and and we both become more conscientious over the next 10 years but our general rankings a relative standing should still be approximately the same. And the research is pretty compelling on that point. Um, but but there are things that will also, you can change in the ranking too. And, you know, those things, those things uh, can result from, as you say, the kind of environment we're in or perhaps the kinds of tasks we take on, whether or not you have a family. That kind of compels you, right? If you suddenly have yep. three kids to look after, you can't, you, there is an extra, you know, you you become more conscientious. You have to, yeah. you know, and so it, it's an influence of all of those things. So yeah, there is stability and there is change at the same time. So then when you apply
0: that to the everyday life, why do you, you know, what sort of evidence do we leave around on all of these different behavioral traits? Like when we interact with the world, mm-hmm. um, you, you know, you talked earlier about it's very difficult to hide these traits Mm -hmm. because you're just going to become mentally exhausted. Like maybe you do it like your example of a party. Maybe Mm -hmm. you do it one night, you know, because it's a once in a year type of thing, but you're probably not doing it every weekend because you'll go crazy. You know what I mean? And and on the flip side, if you're an extrovert, maybe you spend a Friday night indoors watching a movie by yourself, but you're probably not doing that every Friday night. You're going to go crazy. Uh, Right. You, you know, maybe just talk a little bit about how, yeah, like, sure. how these traits really affect us every day, and the residue that we sort of leave around that that evidences these mm-hmm. traits.
1: Well, I think, I mean, the, all all the traits are having this kind of constant, persistent, you know, you know, in a way, the kind of low level impact on the sort of micro decisions we make every day, which over time they accrue and leave a big trace. So, for example, you know, you, you might imagine, you know, when we were You know, because we did our our first studies going to people's offices and going to their bedrooms. And the first question people ask is, well, of course, everyone's going to tidy up before you (laughs) get there. So, how are you even going to tell any differences? Uh, And, but I can tell you, having been around many, many of these places, there are huge differences. Now, some of those differences, sure, because people didn't super tidy up, but some of those people really did tidy up. And and there's, but there's a huge difference, right, between a tidied space. And a tidy space, a, a truly structurally tidy place, because you, co- you know, if your place is really in chaos, there's only so much you could do in an afternoon or a day or even a week to make it like the other person who really has all of their books alphabetized and the paper clips all in the paper clip tray, and you know all of the, you know the, the 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 spare, you know tape in their drawer and the calendar filled out for the past, you know the desk calendar filled out for the you know there's
0: there's yeah. only so
1: much you you can do in that time and and if you're not really that way you know you wouldn't even um you wouldn't even notice um some of the things so like my my colleague um in the department of psychology here cindy and she is you know brilliant scientist and much much more conscientious than me now if her and her you know, all the journals, alphabetized, all of everything is... If I went, when she was away, I went in and took one of the pencils from her pencil box with all (laughs) those beautifully sharpened pencils and turned one of those pencils upside down, she would notice it right away. If you snuck into my office when I wasn't there and turned all the books on their side, I wouldn't notice until somebody said, why are all the books on their side, Sam? Yeah. You know, and so those differences in perception are very you can't fake them you know yep. i just the things i just wouldn't see i um, mean and you said you know you said you are low for example on uh, on the openness scale if you wanted to give the impression you're high on the openness you know say okay i want to be high on openness so here's what i need to do i need to you know start going to some you know some you know uh, icelandic you know, skateboard rapping group com- or who like who, com- who knows com- what it would be competitive you know, duck feeding event yeah there you go some yeah. major competitive <laughs> duck feeding event watching it go you down
0: to, the, the bridge yeah
1: if if you don't know about how would you even know where to go and if you did need to go and see this kind of you know obscure <laughs> you know band of you know throat singing ice icelandic people <laughs> then you have to sit through that damn show for three hours and come back and make a big thing about you know and if you when you posted about it on social media, all of your friends would say, "Hey, what's going on? We know that's not you know you're never into that stuff so actually com- you know conveying a false impression in a in a compelling way that doesn't that fits in with everything else in your space and doesn't alert and worry your friends to an extent that they say something about it, it's incredibly hard to do in reality so. And I want to take that to the
0: extreme, because the other thing mm-hmm. I found really interesting in your book is talking about people who are who are narcissists, because you mm-hmm. would have thought that with a narcissist, especially maybe in a work or a personal environment, mm-hmm. it's not a trait that you would want to mm-hmm. openly share, you, you know, mm-hmm. because working with a narcissist or having a relationship with a narcissist might not be good for yourself. Um, mm-hmm. But what I... The first thing you talked about in your book is where the word narcissist actually comes from, which I found, Mm -hmm. so if you could touch on that, that is actually a really neat story of where Mm -hmm. the word narcissist comes from. But then maybe talk about how even these negative traits or what people Mm -hmm. would perceive as negative, people can't hide those either,
1: right? Right. It,
0: It actually works in the reverse.
1: Right. Yes. Yeah, so I mean, you know, the, I mean the classic story of Narcissus. Right, is the guy who went, you know, he went he went, went hunting, you know, in the forest. and then of course uh, we're thirsty and lent over, you know, the stories vary a stream or a lake, uh, and to have some water, caught his own reflection, and then was so, you know, entranced by the beautiful reflection. Either, you know, different stories. Some say he just starved to death. Others say he, you know, fell in and drowned, and various things. Anyway, the idea that, you know, self self love. Is what you know is the root of it, and the the the, the dangers of self love. You know is, is where we get the term you know narcissism from. And you know some of the best work done on this was done by my um, colleague Daniel Ames at uh, Columbia University. And you know, and part, part of one of his class demonstrations, he um, you know just to kind of demonstrate these different traits to others, he will often give surveys, including the uh, narcissism survey. To his uh, students, uh, and what he, you know, and then what he found was some of these students, you know, got the top score, forty out of forty, which is a, you know, which is like incredibly rare, and you know, and and he was kind of like, oh my god, he was worried. How am I going to, like, break it to these people that they're actually extreme narcissists? I mean, it may even be clinical narcissists. How am I going to do it to them? But of course, he didn't need to be worried because their self-love swung into action and portrayed that as a beautiful thing. And he later heard those students telling the others saying, yes, I aced the narcissism test. I got them all right. And so, you know, so, and that's, you know, that's the thing about narcissism is essentially you, um, you, your psychology is able to, you know, reframe everything in a positive light. You know another another great example of this is uh, uh, Delroy Paulus has, uh, has uh, invented this survey which he called the Overclaiming Questionnaire, which is simply looking at people's tendencies to claim to have heard of things that don't exist. Like Jimmy Kimmel does a little th- uh, a thing of this, where he where he goes to Coachella and then asks people how excited they are to see bands that don't exist, and you know people will go on about how excited they are to do it, and so it's the same thing, and and. So Dell will do this. He'll say, you know, here are some famous writers and here are some famous artists and musicians and so on. You know, how how familiar are you with them? And, um, you know, narcissists are much more likely to claim to have heard of these non-existent entities. They think they really know them. And then a really interesting kind of twist on this is if you tell people before they take this survey, hey, I just need to warn you that there might be some names on this list of people who don't exist. What most people do at that point is they say, oh, okay, I might get some of these don't exist. I don't want to be caught thinking of somebody, you know, claiming to have heard of somebody or something that doesn't exist. And so virtually everybody downgrades all of their familiarity ratings. You know, if there's some obscure name, they would previously thought, oh, maybe I have a, you know, five out of 10 on them. But actually, they downgrade that to maybe a two out of 10 because they don't want to be caught, you know, claiming to know that. But that doesn't happen to narcissists. Narcissist scores don't change at all when you tell them they're non-existent items on there, which is absolutely fascinating. And then, you know, you know, Dell, who's run these studies, has told me he's, you know, afterwards gone up to some of these people and said, hey, by the way, you know, this person doesn't exist. And, you know, and I made up this survey, so I know they don't exist. And the people will argue with him that they do exist. (laughs) And so. And, you know, and of course, you know, and it's very, you know, it's an incredibly unique situation to be in a situation where you can get somebody to say they've heard of something that you know doesn't exist because you created that situation. That doesn't normally happen. Normally, if, I, if I'm in a discussion with somebody and I say, oh, I think this. And they go, no, no, I think that. And I think, no, I really think this. But then they double down and triple down and quadruple down on it. Then you think, oh, they, that, you, know, you, you know, you let it go. and think, Oh, well, maybe they're right. So, so Dell thinks, you know, the thing is that this extreme self-confidence in their kind of uh, ideas and opinions, it promotes them defending it strongly such that they actually in real life never really have these false beliefs about them challenged in some fundamental way.
0: Crazy. You have a great quiz in your book. That was another one where I took out the pencil and or the pen and went through the the quiz on the uh, on on the name rec- recognition. And uh, oh yeah, exactly. Yeah. Y- you know that was a good uh, that was a, that was an interesting interesting exercise mm-hmm. to, uh, to to go through. Um, so Sam, we now we learned about people that their traits. <clears throat> so if any of us walk into an office and we want to snoop out an office and we want to mm-hmm. learn about somebody. Give us some tips on 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 how we go about on 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 how we go about doing that
1: yeah well, I think one of the so most important uh tips is really to look for overall um, trends uh, and not to not to on average weigh any single clue too importantly because we want you know because there are many reasons so you know if you you know if you were to you know Come into my um, space right now you you would see things you know occasional things that are not normally there and they 're not normally there because I have a friend staying with me you know and so it would be so you know so you shouldn't in fact weigh that too heavily because it's not really uh, a reflection of, of who I am so the, so the main main thing is to look for trends if you see you know diversity in the collection of books, do you also see diversity? In, other th- in, the, in the music they have, or in the magazines they have, or in whatever, whatever else, else it might be. So, so I think you know, that's uh, you know, one of the most important things to really understand. Um, the other uh, important thing is to, what I say is, is when you're looking at the object, so when you do look at the individual objects, you want to look at like, what the object is, uh, its um, state, and also its location. So for example, you know, the, the example I like to use is because in offices, you know, some people have a kind of a, a calendar on their desk, you know, desk calendar or, or something like that or some other thing organizational aid. So first of all, that they have one, well, okay. That's that's a start. We know that that, that this person may may have some orientation towards um being Organized and caring about orderliness and you know the sort of conscientiousness related uh traits, however, you also want to look at its state is this actually being used um, uh, and um so so you know because many of us you know we can think, okay, I need to be organized, and we go out to you know office depot, whatever it is, and buy all the organizational equipment, but because that's not really who we are, we end up not using them. It just gathers dust. There's a big difference between the calendar you have on your desk that is actually filled out, you know, meticulously ahead and in the past and with one color for birthday and something else for meetings and something else for social events or whatever it is, than the calendar that's, you know, gathering dust still, you know, three with three months old and hasn't haven't been completed that does tell you something it tells you that the person at least has aspirations to be organized but maybe they don't actually engage in the behavior and that's different from somebody who just doesn't care and then the final thing to look at with these objects is their essentially their location because that can make a big difference you'll remember earlier i talked about um uh, identity claims versus um thought and feeling regulators right identity claims are deliberate statements we make to others whereas thought and feeling regulators are about making ourselves feel a certain way so you know if that if the office is constructed in such a way as to where they can have the same photo but in different orientations do they have the photo of them shaking hands with some important person or with their family do they have it facing out for others to see yeah. Or do they have it facing towards the occupant themselves? And those different things will tell you whether, you know, what psychological function that that um, item is serving, you know. So so I think, you know, um, um, so, you know, so so I think that it, that's incredibly, uh, you know, important. Like if they have the desk calendar out of the way, not being used. OK, we can disregard that as being something. That's so important. You and know, just, you know, to give, like, for example, you know, to give you an, an example of, you know, the sorts of things I do. Like, I'm mean, just looking at in your background right now, I see some things, like I see a calendar, you know. So mm-hmm. I see, okay, so that calendar, and that it does seem to be as far as I can see in the right month, is it? Or is it? Yeah, it's February. Okay, yeah, yeah. February. I can't see. I can't see. Yeah. So it seems to be in the right month. So, okay, so that's a, so I'll, be, you know, I'd begin putting together, okay, this person seems kind of on top of things. But who but you know who but who so you know are beginning to push this together, but you know there are many reasons why you might have a calendar, so we need to you know disambiguate that is it because you 're organized is it because you know I would need to see you know i can 't actually see what is it is of it looks like it 's of a person, like is it because you 're a fan of that person, is it because this was some free gift because you donated money to some cause or some, you know so i 'd begin mm-hmm. to look to be able to disambiguate what you know what that's about and i see there's another uh painting or photo of the same tones to the side of that so i begin to okay we're beginning to put together that also seems to be a uh a, a picture but it doesn't seem to have as far as i can tell like many people in it it's more of a kind of a calming kind of relaxing thing Again, which might be, you know, so again, we're just, you know, I don't know because I need to see more, but i say, okay, maybe this person's a little bit more introverted. There's not lots of people in there and so on, although there is on the calendar, so we need to look around for other ways. I can see there's a big map there. So is now what is the map for Would I look around and see that there's evidence that that map is something to do with your job or is it something to do with your, you know, your the things you enjoy doing? And as I look and see more, each of the new pieces of evidence, It hopefully would help me disambiguate some of the other clues so I could learn how to interpret it. You know, you know, do you know, do you have, you know, a, you know, a poster, you know, of somebody in an ironic, you know, like a a religious icon in a kind of ironic way? Like, you know, I think this is one of the examples I use in my book where somebody had kind of a plastic version of the Virgin Mary. Now, is that in a kind of ironic, kitschy way? Or is that in a religious way? And, you know, and by looking at the other objects around, I would be able to disambiguate the meaning of that Virgin Mary statue. You know, ah, OK, I also see there's a plastic pineapple and a velvet Elvis Presley. It's kind of kitschy. Or, oh, I see the Bible and the cross and other things too. This is indication of the person's religiosity or something like that. So you again, just as, just as you know, Sherlock Holmes or Hercule Poirot or any of the others, you're kind of putting together these things piece by piece, looking for pieces of evidence that um, go together. And although the things that really stick out will grab your attention, the fact that they grab your attention tend to mean they are inconsistent with the general themes and in fact you should play you know you should push against this grabbing your attention and say okay i'm going to play down that piece of whatever it is object or or poster or whatever i'm going to play that down because it's so inconsistent it tells me it's probably not to do with this person's kind of general tendencies so
0: you you talked a little bit earlier about the risk of you know, be careful. Don't Mm -hmm. just take one thing Mm -hmm. and, and build assumption outside, because like you say, it might be because you have a friend staying, you know, maybe you were on vacation for a week and somebody else was in your office. um, And this is your first day back and you haven't had a a person left some stuff. Maybe just talk a little bit about the risk of anchoring. What is, why do you have to be careful and about, you know, what is the anchoring and why do you have to be careful knowing because it's, mm-hmm. it just seems to be the the risk of anchoring is just human psychology. Yeah. It's not something that you can just turn off. It's more right. something that's on and you just got to be kind of be aware of it uh, in order to kind of tell it to, Hey, like back off type of thing. Right.
1: Yeah. Well, the idea of anchoring is just that any kind of, you know, first, um, uh, guess will, um, will anchor the kind of the range of subsequent cognition. So, you know, I do a demonstration in my class, for example, where, Half the class is uh, is asked: um, Is the Mississippi River longer or shorter than five hundred miles? Question two: How long is it? The other half of the class is asked: Is the Mississippi River longer or shorter than five thousand miles? How long is it? Now everybody gets it right. It's longer than five hundred and shorter than five thousand. I mean, not everybody, but nearly everybody. Gets it right, but then of course what's interesting is that the estimates that follow, and you see that in the first example where the where they've been anchored at five hundred, the estimates are about two two plus thousand miles shorter than when we asked people first is the Mississippi um, five thousand miles, and then we asked you to estimate. You know, and you know of course that's used in all kinds of you know financial negotiations too. You know, you want to get in. You know, when you're negotiating about Salary or buying something or selling something, right? The the first price you get in usually anchors the range you're going to be talking about and can have, have a huge effect on subsequent negotiations. Uh, and you know, and the same thing goes here is, is is when you you know your first impressions will you know, and that might be something you see in a space or or some or or something somebody does, you know. That's why people, you know, that's why and it is true. People say first impressions are important because yep. they're essentially they are anchoring you. You know, closer to five hundred miles or five thousand miles in your impression of that person, and why you know you have to be ready. You have to remember, okay, that was, was that by chance that that was my first impression of the person. You have to be ready to let that go if the ev- evidence doesn't. And it's so powerful that I I will often, you know, I find it hard to really not be anchored. When, you know, when, when when I need not to be. And 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 is
0: there some traits that are easier to uncover than others like is there some that are that are very difficult but is there some like you know you talked a little bit about introversion versus extroversion like that is mm-hmm. easy to figure mm-hmm. out or are they all kind of you know you got to dig in for to figure out every single one
1: uh, it, all, it really all depends on the trait and the situation so, so the thing is something like extroversion you know occurs and agreeableness Th- those are kind of the interpersonal traits So those occur in social interactions. So in a social interaction, people are, are pretty good at being able to guess people's extroversion um, uh, and uh, ad- fr- from meeting someone. Um, but the issue is, of course, that, you know, until recently, those those types of interactions didn't leave any trace. They're kind of, you know, ephemeral, you, you know, we have a conversation and nothing remains. But of course now of course that's not so true because lots of interactions are done you know electronically and leave a material yep. trace. Or as I say, for example, when you know we doing our studies using people's um uh uh mobile phones, which might you know will record the number of interactions somebody has or how many phone calls they have or the proximity they are to other phones and, and those sorts of things, then we now are able to kind of uh, get some kind of trace because because those that's the sorts of traits You know, extroverted uh, related traits, those are the ones that essentially get manifested in in those contexts. Whereas if I want to know something about your openness to experience, then I'd be then looking in a place like your home or potentially your office or perhaps your music collection or other places. Those would be then a good place to get those. So, you know, it, it really comes down to where each of these different dimensions are expressed like you know in your office would be a good place to look, for example, or or in your your space, your physical space, for conscientiousness because yep. so much of that is reflected in the organisation and uh, and how clean and uh, and tidy things are, you know. So whereas I, if I just meet you for a second, or even for a long time, I may meet you for a long time, but you know, unless we're scheduling events together, and I may never know your conscientiousness. Or it'll, be, it'll take longer for me to get there. Let's put it that way. So then let's move
0: into somebody's personal spaces, their house. What's the best room in the house to figure out um, their personality traits? Is there one that trumps everything?
1: Well, I think, I mean, the, the first thing I should say is I, I can't really answer that question because I haven't looked at them all. Um, you know, w- when I did my first study of this, I was looking at what I call people's living spaces. But these were really much more than living rooms and more and more than bedrooms because they were mainly... Students or for recent students, rooms where people would, you know, would be living, say, in a dorm room or a student room, where it would be both. It'd be the place they would study and spend time and socialize and sleep. So those places were very good because essentially, so much goes in them. Um, so I think, you know, you know, if it 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 depends a little bit on on you know, the, the kind of lifestyle they are. Um, if if they are, you know, living with another person then it can be very hard to you know attribute the different things to one person so if it's somebody who is living with somebody then the best thing to do is to try to find their space their office yep. their where they get to express themselves um, so, so, so that's uh uh one important thing another important thing is to um understand kind of the differences between essentially private and public places so a lot of the spaces um, is you know are, are are you know socially and sort of explicitly designed for presentation of others so if you go maybe you go to their living room and see all of the you know highbrow art and philosophy books sitting on the coffee table and around for people to notice but then you know when you're you know, when you're going to the bathroom, you go through their bedroom and you, you notice all of the trashy novels, you know, lying on the bedside table. <laughs> it's, you know, so it's, it's like, you know, so, so there, you know, and again, these, it doesn't mean either of these are false, but it means that they are essentially projecting and and, and reflecting different elements of their personalities in these different spaces. Is there is there some
0: telltale signs in their house to say look if you have that it must mean this like is there is there anything that jumps out that are just complete like telltale signs of somebody's personality?
1: Um, I wish there was. I mean, not really. I mean, probably the 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 closest thing you're ever going to get is some kind of deliberate um, uh, political statement because we you do him. know, for example, that uh, you know. I mean, and, and you know, but. Uh, yeah, because you know, if if, if somebody, yes, yeah, signals their their admiration for a political orientation or a candidate or something like that, it then we'll probably learn quite a you know we'll learn about those suite of traits that we know are associated with political views.
0: You know, the other thing. And I
1: should also, yeah, go ahead.
0: No, I, I was going to say the other thing that you know got me really thinking as I was reading your book is when you started talking about lawn care. At Christmas decorations and everything on the outside of the house, right? Like, mm-hmm. like when you're pulling up to somebody's house for the first time, like mm-hmm. it's everything, right? Like it's, you know, yeah. like up here in, up here in Toronto, it obviously mm-hmm. snows a fair amount. So mm-hmm. who shovels their driveway right. the second that it snows and, and and yeah. who waits a week until the snow melts, you know what I mean? And what yeah. does that tell yeah, about absolutely. somebody's, somebody's yeah. traits, right? It was, <laughs> it, so, so, like, what do you what do you gather from looking at the outside of the person's house? Whether again, it's lawn care or Christmas decor, you used a lot yeah. of really good examples in the book yeah. ab- ab- about about how your outside of your house can yeah. kind of portray your personality as well.
1: Yeah, and so this, you know, this would go, you know, this would, re- you know, potentially reflect a number of things. But you know, as this partially reflects, um, you know, uh, what what I would what I was calling the identity claim. So to, essentially, this is the stage. You know, the front of your house is the stage that you are essentially <clears throat> exhibiting to others. It's like a very big bumper sticker on the back of your car. It's kind of like that, um, where you can convey your willingness. For example, you know, the study of Christmas decorations was like, you know, and again, it will partially depend on the norms of the area. So if nobody's doing Christmas decorations, having Christmas decorations indicates some kind of you know counter normative behavior, maybe high in openness, (laughs) maybe disagreeable, who who knows what. Whereas in another neighborhood, not having the decorations, you know, where everybody does it, not having them may convey a being counter normative behavior and high and openness or something like like that. So you know it's 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 always in the context of those local norms and so on but you know in the, in, the, in the you know the study that was done on christmas decorations it was essentially a signaling to uh sociability and kind of openness to uh, engage with others and this was particularly you know and this was you know indicated because it was particularly strong in new arrivals to the area the people who actually you know had an incentive and a wish to begin engaging with and 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 being part of their community, you know, and I, you know, as again, you know, just as you might compare the, you know, the living, the books in the living room with the books in the bedroom, you might also compare, you know, the front lawn from the back lawn, the, 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 Absolutely. the lawn in the backyard. Absolutely. You know? so are they, is one pristine, you know, and you could imagine, you know, any configuration, none of them are pristine, just the front one's pristine, just the back one's pristine, or they both are, you know, and you, you know, and, and the implications of, of the of what people want to project and how people actually want to spend their time um, and again none of these um you know indicate really a that these people are are are, are being phony it's but it's about you know the, the degree to which they want to adhere to norms and so on you know we are complex people it's it's yep. it doesn't mean you know being polite and behaving in a certain way where that is the norm, and not doing so in another context where that's not the norm, that doesn't make it fake, that makes, you know, that that makes you a a broad and complex person who is sufficiently sensitive to understand the local social norms.
0: Well, you you know, I think, and I think you talk a little bit about this in your book, is that a common human trait is belonging. Mm -hmm right like mm-hmm. that is really important right. for you know for you to mm-hmm. feel you know a sense of belonging whether that's at work mm-hmm. or in your personal space and that's just part of being human again that's yep. not something you can fight that's right. th- that's human nature you can't you know you can't mm-hmm. turn that off so turning on your christmas decorations is uh you know again right. that that's that's a human thing right you, you can't connect fl- you can't flick mm-hmm. it off so some 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 quick some quick hitters here uh sam mm-hmm. Um, music taste. What can we tell from somebody's music taste? Again, you got a lot of really good examples in the book mm. where you you, you outline person X with their music taste and person mm. Y with another mu- mm. music taste, and and trying to figure out where they rank on mm. the scale of of the yeah. different of, of the different human uh, the different human traits. Where what can we tell from someone's music taste?
1: Yeah, well, I think you know music music is interesting, and and our, you know, I think so. The I think the first thing, you know, to keep in mind is that is that, um, you know, these these change. So, you know, the specific findings with regard to genres that we collected, you know, over 10 years ago may not still be whole today. Who knows? Because, you know, if you think about it, you know, what was, you know, what was, you know, pop music in, you know, and current contemporary music in 2008 is now oldies, you know, that's, you know, so it's, it's this, but I think, you know, many of the broad lessons remain. And and I think one of the most kind of interesting things for us was that, you know, is that when we asked people, so we did a study where people were getting to know each other just over a chat. Um, you know that people who had never met, we just said, "Hey, get to get to know each other over, you know, a number of weeks." I think it was six weeks, and then we just looked at what they talked about. We didn't direct anybody to have any conversation about anything particular. We just said, "Get to know each other." We found that music, and this of course was students, so you know, young people, um, music was the most popular, the most frequently. Uh, uh, talked about topic of all of them and I think it's and I think the reason is is because you know, essentially we have such a diverse palette of music absolutely that it can, that it can tell us is that we can actually convey quite a complex and well understood um, uh, it's, it's an efficient way for me essentially to convey a whole suite of traits and values and also probably. Um, uh, background too, you know. Yep. If I if I tell you that I'm in that I like a lot of country music, that tells you probably not just about my personality traits and so on, but it's it, it's also likely to tell you a little bit about where I came from, and therefore there's a whole bunch of other things that come with that.
0: Well, and and um, and and, and mm-hmm. look, Sam. I don't know what your experience is, but there's probably very few things that every th- everybody can agree on as as human uh-huh. beings or very uh-huh. very few things that all humans share uh-huh. um but i think what at least in my experience um the love of music is is one thing that everybody would or the vast majority let's say uh-huh. of people would share because like you say there's such a wide range of music that's out there um yeah. you know and 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 there wouldn't be a lot of things i would think where you'd say all the hu- you know ev- most humans would actually have a common Um, you know, a common interest, but music would certainly be one of those, um, would be one of those items. Um,
1: And we, and we found people, you know, the study we did was we just, you know, we asked people to tell us, Hey, what are your top 10, you know top 10 songs you know and you know if you think about it, that that would if i just asked you to do that right now that's quite a tough challenge <laughs> yeah. but but so we so we we went to great lengths to make sure people could really you know we said what are your top 10 songs and we said okay now think about it for a week and come back and change it if you want and then we just played people people's top 10s they didn't know anything about them other than their you know top 10s and they were you know, we're pretty good at forming impressions about about the people, you know. And I think, you know, some of the things, you know, some of the, you know, the the, just a few of the examples are pretty, um, you know, you know, intuitive, really. So, you know, like, for example, you know, the people who were into either obscure music, but into classical music, into jazz music, into those sorts, you know, those people tended to be higher on openness, you know, people who were into kind of the punk rock, those guys on average. These are, of course, all generalizations. They tended to be, you know, lower uh, on agreeableness, you know. So, there's a, you know, there's a, there's a whole lot of, um, you know, a whole lot of, you know, w- ways that, you know, that the, the, the music can convey things just because, you know, we really um, can use it as a shorthand of, of conveying a lot of information.
0: So another, another quick one. What can we tell from hmm. someone's handshake?
1: Yeah, so this this was a a a, a cool study done in in uh, a long time ago, in two, in the year two thousand. Yeah, where they they you know because I think we, we you know we don't really know, right? We often have a, a weird handshake and we think, hmm, you know, I wonder what yep. that meant. You know, um, absolutely. And uh, and so, but it, again, it's one of the things that, that's quite hard to study, and probably one of the things that's maybe one of the few things that's maybe better studied in a lab because you can really control all of the different things, you know, like how firm is it, how sweaty is it, how long does the person hold your hand, do they look you in the eye when they're doing it, all of these different dimensions. Uh, and so what they, they did this study where they had, you know, trained um, uh, researchers who kind of trained, it took them a month to train them to kind of receive the handshake <laughs> in a kind of neutral way and then really, and then rate it on these eight dimensions and what they found actually was a little bit surprising is the fact that essentially there aren't a huge variety of different handshakes. They tend to, they essentially could classify them into kind of like a firm handshake versus a not firm handshake. And I what see. they found w- with that was that people who are firm handshakers, they on average, again, just generalization, tend to be higher on extroversion and lower on neuroticism. And in women only, people with a handshake, a, a firm handshake tended to be higher on openness. Uh, and then the other thing they found, which is, of course, you know, you know I don't know if we've known it, but should have known it, is that, is that uh, a firm handshake almost always gives a better impression than a weak handshake. Email signatures. What can <laughs> we tell from
0: somebody's email signature?
1: Yeah, I think those are fascinating. I mean that that's really just kind of an equivalent of a, a an identity claim. It's like a bumper sticker on the back of a car or you know or a t-shirt. It's but, it's, but it but again, a bit like the music, you have much more flexibility. You're not limited to the t-shirts that are out there or the bumper stickers you can buy. You can you can quote anyone and you can, you know, add a kind of an interesting configuration of different quotes to really kind of craft your so, you know your message to others so it's not, so it's really a very you know a very effective way of being able to convey to somebody your goals your values your sense of identity things that might in fact be quite hard to get from most superficial interactions just like an email
0: if we have any mechanics that are listening mm-hmm. um and they specifically specialize in brakes. What can we tell about brake pad uh, brake pad repair, Sam? What what what's that yeah, going to tell us about somebody?
1: Yeah. Well, this, this was this is not an empirical study, but this was a, a mechanic who told me. He said, "Yeah." He says, "It, must, know, be go, it must be true." But, but I bet it's true. Um, Absolutely. No. But it's the idea that um, and you know, and if you think about you know what I when I was talking about the Big Five, you know what I described you know, and I described neuroticism. I said you can think about it as a sensitivity to stuff that might go wrong, you know, like that. And <clears> so <throat> what that means is that, you know, oh I heard a screech. Oh, you know, I heard a noise. Put my foot on the brake. Oh, is that a sound? Put my foot on the brake. Oh, is that is that light gonna turn red? I don't know. Put my foot on the brake. And so what, what this mechanic claimed was he says, look, he could absolutely tell the personality, especially the neuroticism of his customers by how quickly their um, breaks run out. And, you know, but I think it also serves to make a kind of, draw a broader lesson too. And the broader lesson is that, you know, the, the thing you mentioned right at the very beginning is that, look, personality is with us the whole time and it's leaking out in various ways. And I bet, you know, virtually everybody, you know, whether, you know, you're a chef or a librarian or a truck driver or a mechanic or, or journalist, whatever it is you are within your kind of specialist, domain where you see a huge number of people across that domain you you learn how those differences get expressed in your domain if you work in a restaurant you'll probably notice hey why is it that some people never eat the ends of the beans or organize their food this way or always leave the you know or if you're the you know the journalist, why is it you know when i'm interviewing people some always start out this way or sit that way or you know essentially you will notice these kind of regularities and these signals to what people are like within your own domain of expertise, and, and and you know, and I think it gets back to the question of like why? Why is it that we are doing this? And and you know, other humans, you know, for you know many tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of years, have consistently been the sources of our greatest opportunities and our greatest threats. It's incredibly important. To know what other people are like that you know that makes the biggest difference in fact to our lives. Should this person be trusted you know should you know those sorts of decisions are so you know profoundly important to our success and survival that we are attuned to looking for clues wherever they may be you know and sometimes we get it wrong, but nonetheless we're kind of constantly. Alert to try to kind of detect them
0: the other thing I really to to kind of bring this all back now is let's assume that there's an organization out there today which says, Look, in our office space, you're going to have this cubicle, you're not allowed to change the color, you're not allowed to mm. put anything up on the board. Mm. you're not allowed mm. to have any pictures. here's your chair, here's your cubicle, here's your computer." Yeah. It's going to be painted, painted white or black or whatever it may be, yeah. and don't touch a thing. Yeah. Can you please tell those people why yeah. that is the yeah. wrong approach? Why it is incredibly yeah. important to yeah. let people um, modify their... If your goal is yeah. to have people more productive, which I would think that yeah. most organizations, that would be a goal that people would want, is make people more productive at work. Yeah. Why it is so important to allow people to have yeah. a little... Obviously, there's limits. Um, but to have, but to give some level of of flexibility and creativity back to the employees and let them do a little something with their their uh, uh, their office space.
1: Yeah, well, I think it's I think it's hugely important um, uh, to do that. I mean, I think the worry is that oh, if people have these postcards and photos, they're just going to be kind of distracted, and they're not going to be truly you know they're not a serious uh, uh, worker in whatever domain this is. Whereas, in fact, you, we all know you know that we work in some places better than others like you know you know i work best in a kind of a slight low level buzzing cafe that's where i can really get work done whereas others can't possibly work there um and so essentially we want to be you know uh, we essentially want to go back to this idea of thought and feeling regulators we work we want to create the space where we are able to um have our thoughts and our feelings regulated to a level that allow us to be effective in what we're doing. You know, I think this is one of the great benefits of actually our online classes is that, you know, before we insisted everybody sit in a lecture hall, yep. but you know, that's not the best place for some people to learn. They, why not let them go and sit in their bedroom or in a cafe or in the library or, or whatever, it is, to choose the space where they are best, um, uh, suited learning. and yeah, and there's so much, there's so much the wrong with with cubicles. I mean, you know, I've if you, you know, if you go to a cafe, if we go to a cafe uh, and we both stood there and said, okay, it's an empty cafe, and we and we say, where's the first person going to sit? We would all agree, it would all agree, it's one of those chairs with the backs to the wall, or the one in the corner, and ideally the one in the back to the wall where you can see the door, and so on. So there's all these things that, in fact, are so natural and such a strong force that we. We don't. We don't even notice it. If, we would only notice it if somebody went to the cafe and then sat down on the chair, facing the wall instead of with their back to wall. That would be odd. Like we might think, "Oh, what's going on there?" That, that, then we would notice it. And so, like you have people designing cubicle, you know, office cubicles. Where what are they doing? They're facing inwards. Yeah. Yeah. With their back yeah. to everybody else. It's like, it's like it just it's you know it's a, you know a, you know signifies how how little attention architects and designers actually pay to the basic psychology of the people who are occupying the spaces they've built. It's like cubicles are bananas. It it makes no sense at all. Uh, You know, or or the open plan thing where we, we know just from looking around that it makes us anxious to have people or things behind us. If you're gonna make people sit there, give them mirrors so they can see what's behind them so they're not, you know, just experiencing this low level anxiety have, have, throughout the day. Have you seen more advancement on that front? Sam,
0: like I've heard you talk about this before about yeah. you know, designing architecture and about mm. how, you know, like you say, like emotional regulators are not really mm. used in architecture yeah. at all. You know, and, and you even have an example in your book about a guy who's a home builder and yeah. And he was building homes, and it was yeah. they would actually interview the people and actually yeah. understand yeah. And, and build the, yeah. build the home like that. Have you seen mm-hmm. more advancement on that front, or is it still kind of in the in the dark ages with with uh you know building build,
1: uh, designing buildings that 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 dig mm-hmm. into that i would say th- i would say there's been a lot of advancement over the past five ten years but but we're all but we're largely still in the dark ages but there there's a there's a- there's a, there's a growing and increasingly vociferous and sophisticated and thoughtful and collaborative group of people from the social sciences, from the design areas, from developers, from and even some architects now who are really engaging with this idea and saying, look, it's, you know, architecture shouldn't be, you know, it's not about designing beautiful pieces of art for other artists to enjoy, or either other architects to enjoy, like that it's not, you know, it's not about you, architects, it's about the people who are in it. And that's actually not, you don't need to build a beautiful place and then try to make it nice for the people inside. You need to start from the people inside and work there. And they're really, and you know, and then afterwards, you can try to make it beautiful too if you want. But that is not priority number one. And, you know, and I can understand how architecture has gotten that way. If you look at the training that goes on and you look at, you know, where people and the selection people are, are completely socialized in architecture to be artists. You yeah. are going to create this beautiful uh um, uh, uh piece of art. And other and you will get awards if it looks beautiful as as determined by other architects who by the way, the research shows completely have a different opinion to everybody else but anyway that's what you will, you will do and 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 it's bad first of all because it leads to bad buildings, but it's also bad because in reality, you know less than one percent of people coming out of architecture school actually get to do that kind of architecture, so it's yeah. also misleading you know I think you know what we're I mean, I mean, really. I think the world would be a far better place if, instead of the idea of "Hey, I you know want to go and create great art," it was people. It was the sorts of people who are thinking, "All right, now do I want to be like? Should I be a nurse or a doctor, or should I be a social worker, or should I be an architect?" If it was those people, where there, it's not about aggrandizing themselves, it's about helping others. Yep. If those people were becoming architects. Then I think we'd see an incredible increase in well-being, in productivity, in flourishing, in sleep, um, reductions in loneliness, depression, anxiety, all kinds of things. If we were starting from how, what, how does the, how do human bodies work? How do human minds work? And let's design up from there. Then we, you know. It, 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 it would lead to so many good things at the individual and societal level.
0: It makes perfect sense. Like it, 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 when I was reading it in your book, it, like it mm. just, again, some again, it just makes sense. Like it's mm-hmm. it's logical. It, yeah. it, uh, um, Well, Sam, the way I want to wrap up here is just to Mm -hmm. comment again, you you know, you can find a lot of, you you know, you Google Sam's name and you find a lot of like research papers and things like that Mm -hmm. on very interesting topics. What's the next thing on your list is, is there a book in the pipe? What's the, uh, what's the, uh, the topic du jour uh, for uh, professor Sam Gausling?
1: What we are doing right now is we we're actually now trying to get more seriously into this sort of architecture uh, area. I mean, I've been, you know, agitating uh, irritatingly i'm sure to others for long, for long enough about how architecture needs to do things differently uh psychology needs to do things differently too so it's not just the architect's fault the the, the you know some you know when i talk to architects and say um to them hey why don't you do more psychology you know occasionally some say oh yeah that's a great idea we should um uh, we should look at some psychology and make better buildings, you know and then they say, "Well you know tell me where I should look, and then hmm. I go, all quiet because we have we psychologists haven 't been doing research in a way that is actually practically useful to architects. One of my you know very good architect friends uh, and who we you know tried working with, he said to me he said um, because when I read the uh, psychology literature, I see a lot of answers to questions i don 't have." And he's absolutely right. We we there's no way that what we have done could be useful to architects. So, so what I am doing now, and what I hope to be doing, you know, for the foreseeable future, is trying to answer questions that the architects do have. Like, what is it that makes somewhere feel comfortable or relaxing, or or inspiring? You know, what are the not just relying on the intuition of an artist, but saying, okay. You know we can do this we're scientists we can we can figure this out and let's come up with some you know i mean they might be different you know diff- the answers might be f- different for different kinds of people but let's just at least come up with some answers so that you don't have to be a you know incredibly uh privileged r- rich person to be able to hire an architect to build your thing everybody should be able to benefit from what we know about the connections between people and their spaces it's this isn't something that should be exclusively for the people who can, you know, hire an architect.
0: Yeah, uh, I, I agreed. No, it's uh, it's a very, very interesting, uh, very interesting topic. So, Sam, I just again uh, thank you very much for for joining us again. The ninety minutes flies through in in mm-hmm. no time. We barely even got to everything that uh, mm-hmm. that I wanted to touch on. But uh, but again, thank you very much for joining. It was uh, it was a lot of fun uh, having this chat.
1: Yeah, it was fun. Th- thanks for having me.
0: Great.